0: All right, this morning we're going to look at how the world changed forever. Obviously it changed forever when God entered history as a true man, a man of unrivaled goodness and wisdom, and a man who came to pay the penalty for our sins. He changed the world forever. But today we'll see how that change is working itself out in God's redemptive plan. The world is in God's hands. He ordains the course of history. And what he ordains ultimately, ultimately, always comes to be. It always serves his purposes as well. So much of what he ordains is mysterious. But much also has been revealed. And we have a God that communicates. That's really important to remember never forget that and he does it in his word so from Genesis to Revelation God has always expressed the desire to bless all the different people of the world all the people groups the God of the Bible has never been a local God or a tribal God nothing like the ancient gods that surrounded Israel or were anywhere else in the entire planet they all believed in little gods but he made the universe and he made all the human beings from one man and one woman we all descend from one couple so all the families of the earth are related and we are precious to God and he planned from the beginning to save and redeem people from every language group and every ethnicity all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham God's interest was never limited Never limited to Abraham's physical descendants. In fact his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise right there early in Genesis that's how the plan of redemption is revealed the first time a blessing to all nations isn't it wonderful that after the flood destroys all of humanity because the thoughts and intentions of the heart of men were only evil continually after that the Lord selects a man through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed isn't that a great thing And all of the later prophecies about the Messiah, they're global, they're global in scope as regards his glorious reign and his everlasting rule. One good example of that, and there are so many, but I'll just pick one, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 49. The Lord says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth so many passages like that Messiah is for the world and the world will be his but for all sorts of reasons God did start with one people the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob which we call the people of Israel the name God gave to Jacob Israel That said, as far as this great transition goes from national Israel to a global church, Acts chapter 10 is a central chapter, along with chapter 15 in the book of Acts. The coming of Jesus the Messiah brought forth a whole new reality in terms of God's redemptive plan for the ages. And until this carefully arranged event in Acts 10, arranged by God, Christianity has been so far almost an entirely Jewish affair the apostles and the first Christians were Jews and their lives had been set for them by centuries of tradition for them becoming followers of Jesus meant the fulfillment of all that it was to be a Jew so that didn't change their fundamentally Jewish way of living that Jesus came it was natural that these early Christians just kept the rules by which they had lived their whole lives they would have kept the dietary laws they would have kept the feasts the, the many rules that separated them from their Gentile neighbors or acquaintances but as Christians they did have the Great Commission they knew that they were to take the gospel to the whole world beginning at Jerusalem and at this point Gentile inclusion had not really been a big issue But in Acts chapter 10 God decides in his timing to address the place of Gentiles in the new redemptive program. And rather like the story of Saul's conversion this story in chapter 10 has God speaking to both sides. Remember when Saul um, was laid hold of on the road to Damascus God spoke to him and he also spoke to Ananias who was already um, in Syria. Now in this story, God's going to bring together Peter and a man named Cornelius. They've never met, and they're not likely to meet. Uh, they're 30 miles apart at this point, and nothing in their normal lives would have brought them together. That, now, that doesn't stop God. Of course, He could have arranged them to meet providentially in just sort of, some sort of normal way. But this is a monumental event, and God wants it to be miraculous and substantive. And not in any way seem like a coincidence. It's a planned thing. It's something he works to make happen. If this didn't happen. Well none of us would be here today. So in Acts chapter 10. It begins with an introduction to this man Cornelius. It says now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. A centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. So we have a man named Cornelius. He's at Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of Judea. Uh, that's where the procurator lived, and it was mainly a gentile city in the heart of the Holy Land, with, built with Roman money and their designs and their way of life. It had a had beautiful public buildings for their administrators, and naturally it was the headquarters of the Roman imperial army. And Cornelius is a centurion. What is a centurion? Well, he's an officer in the military. You know so centurions come off pretty well in the New Testament it seems like every time they're mentioned they they're not bad people they come across pretty positive and they're always uh, Gentiles. So there's the centurion whose faith Jesus commended who had the suffering servant and asked, told Jesus he understands authority and if you say it it will happen and Jesus commended his faith. There's the centurion at the cross who declared Jesus to be the son of God there's Cornelius here and then in Acts chapter 7 there's a, a centurion named Julius who just is also just a good man so um, they're quality people in the Bible in rank a centurion would be like a, a captain in our, our modern army in charge of man in charge of a company a century of course would be that you, get the, you can hear that word 100 in there so traditionally um, the Roman army had uh, a company of 100 men but by New Testament times it was probably 80 80 men so um, so a century's 80 a cohort was six centuries so that would be 480 and a legion would be 10 cohorts together so this is th- this guy's from the Italian cohort It's made up of mainly Italians right Romans the Roman army by that time is very integrated but they probably had different groups that sort of worked together spoke the same language had the same culture Um, but so he's like a captain but unlike modern captains uh, centurions were considered non-commissioned officers kinda like a master sergeant and like the master sergeant these guys were really the backbone of the Roman army centurions were not appointed politically like higher officers they were uh, they earned their way through the ranks that's significant Polybius who was a Greek uh, writer about 150 BC he gave an incredibly detailed description of the Roman army and its organization back then and he said centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post that was their reputation And that gives us a little insight into the quality of this man. Luke also says, as I mentioned, he was part of the Italian cohort. Now in verse 2, we learn about this man specifically. So that's sort of generally what a centurion was. But it says, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. That's one sentence, but it says a lot, doesn't it? So he's what we call a God fearer. This is a term for Gentiles who worship the God of Abraham, the one God, but did not take the steps to becoming a full Jewish convert, which would have included things like getting circumcised and coming under the yoke of the law, following all the dietary laws and dressing a certain way and all of that. He did not do that. He did not become a Jew. But Cornelius not only worshiped the God of Abraham, he supported Jews with his own money he gave alms that's like charitable giving he supported Jews in need and he was a prayerful man he, he said his prayers so yeah strong men can be generous prayerful and faithful and that's the kind of man he was so many many God-fearers attended synagogue and read the Hebrew Scriptures they would have read it in Greek uh, but we don't know if Cornelius did that but it's very possible that he did he certainly was a highly respected man so one day during his prayers God grants Cornelius a vision and it's a clear unmistakable revelation verse 3 about the ninth hour of the day he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him Cornelius and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed he said what is it Lord And the angel said to him your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. So the angel's message is pretty fascinating. It almost reads like Leviticus using this sacrificial language here. So a God-fearer, because he was not a Jew, was not allowed to offer sacrifices in the temple. But the angel tells Cornelius that God regards his prayers and his almsgiving as an acceptable sacrifice. Now, even more interesting is this. He's really not saved at this point. So the reason for the vision is to get him saved to get the gospel to him and this is confirmed later in chapter 11 by Peter's description in chapter 11 13 and 14 where Peter says he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying send to Joppa and have Simon who's called Peter brought here and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved you and your household so he's not regarded as a saved person even though he has all of these fine religious qualities can a person be sincerely religious and not saved yes yes they can but Cornelius was genuinely attached to the, the true God he wanted to follow the true God and and uh, kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 God is going to get the gospel to him so God's been drawing him and now it's time to bring him into the joy of salvation So. Religion doesn't save. It's faith in Christ that saves. Prayers and almsgiving are wonderful things, but they don't solve our sin problem. Only the Savior does that. So how does Cornelius respond to this angelic message? Well, he's more than ready to do his part. Verse 7, when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So there's a little group of guys going to Joppa who's at Joppa Peter he's living there right so now we move to the other end Peter also is given a vision he's been praying as well so verse 9 on the next day as they were on their way approaching the city Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and was desiring to eat but while they were making preparations he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by the four corners to the ground and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air and a voice came to him get up Peter kill and eat now notice the vision actually matches Peter's craving it says he was hungry verse 10 and he gets a vision of all kinds of food but it's not food that he could eat or was allowed to eat it's a vision of unclean food so shockingly the voice says get up Peter kill and eat these unclean animals but Peter unlike Cornelius is not eager to obey and why not why don't you think Peter, Peter would want to obey the commands that he got in a vision well because the request being made of him is contrary to everything his life has been about his Jewish life Peter is an observant Jew he keeps the traditions he was taught from birth he does not eat unclean animals he never has done that and while it's true that Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7 verse 29 and that Jesus said you cannot put new wine into old wineskins, Jesus did not immediately start serving ham sandwiches after he said that so they still had never eaten anything that was unclean Um, it was just sort of a general principle that he had declared foods clean. So the apostles and the Lord Jesus observed the dietary laws enjoined by Moses in the Old Testament. And while they did not always observe rabbinical rules, they did always observe the law of Moses. So Peter is shocked at the request. Verse 14, Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. No way I'm going to eat these animals. He's been commanded to do that. And he's saying no. That's a typical Peter thing isn't it? Kind of gets his dander up there. So maybe he's thinking what is this a test or something? I don't know. But verse 15 again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So God has changed things Peter. Did Peter grasp that? Not really because it gets repeated three times. Verse 16 says this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. If he doesn't listen after three times I guess you're going to give up, right? Why is this important at this particular moment? Because the very things that are designed in the law of Moses to separate Israel from Gentile influence are now becoming a barrier to reaching them that's why this vision has to come the great commission to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth to reach the Gentiles is going to require a major adjustment in how a Jewish follower of Jesus lives his or her life so God is planning a single spiritual entity in the world the church with Jews and Gentiles existing together in unrestrained fellowship so that can only happen in one of two ways one way would be if the rules that separate them are done away with and that's what seems to be going on here the other way would be if the Gentiles have to become Jewish by tradition and culture and follow the laws of Moses and but you know think about it since Gentiles are 98 percent of the world's population and the reason for the separation of rules really are not needed any longer God has chosen to do away with the rules that separate Jew and Gentile so there, there can't be one Christian culture for the whole world there's going to be many cultures many cultures one faith one morality but many expressions of that faith and morality within different cultures listen at one time those rules were absolutely needed I mean it took about a thousand years to drive the last vestige of idolatry out of the hearts and minds of the Jewish people But finally that did happen so they all knew there was one God they were not going to compromise on that and from that foundation laid in the Old Testament of the oneness of God then in God's perfect time Christ came and now the gospel has to go out. So Peter he's working on the meaning of this vision in his mind like why did this happen what's that supposed to mean when ding dong somebody's at the door verse 17. I don't know if they had a doorbell or not. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be behold the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house appeared at the gate and calling out they were asking whether Simon who was also called Peter was staying there and while Peter was reflecting on the vision the spirit said to him behold three men are looking for you but get up go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings for I have sent them myself. So Peter went down to the men and said behold I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason that you have come? They said Cornelius a centurion a righteous and God fearing man well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. Well well the lights are coming on for Peter. Uh, He's starting to see the connection here. This has to do with reaching Gentiles. Now I get it. So Peter knew the gospel had to go to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus had already told him that that was the plan. So practically speaking, that had not yet really happened. Um, So God is preparing for that to start on this day. This is the beginning, this connection here. And Peter seems to start to understand. I can tell you one thing for certain. It would be a very un-Jewish thing to do to invite these Gentiles at the door to come in and spend the night. And he does that very thing. Verse 23. So he invited them and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So the next day they're off to Caesarea and notice Peter doesn't go alone. He takes Christian brothers with him from Joppa So the next day they're off there but he's got companions. In Acts chapter 11 verse 12 he mentions six companions. So these guys are going to be really important witnesses of what's going to happen. So it's a two day trip and they arrive the following day. And Cornelius has been ready. He's organized a big reception for for Peter. Verse 24 on the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius is waiting for them and he called together his relatives and close friends. So, you know, if you were about to have a guest uh, with the most important news in the world, wouldn't you invite some of your neighbors and friends and family? Uh, it's like a big seekers class going on here. So Peter probably has never been in a Gentile house in his life. Because that was forbidden. That's one of the separation rules. That was more of a traditional rule. So this is probably a Roman style house. In Caesarea. A Roman style city. With a large uh, open interior area. Where a lot of people could gather. And watch what this Roman officer. Does. In front of his friends and family. Verse 25. When Peter entered. Cornelius met him. And fell at his feet. And worshipped him. Wow. Now he's not worshiping him, worshiping him like God. He would have known better than that. But Peter probably feels like it's getting pretty close to that and he feels really uncomfortable. So Peter reaches down and raises him up and, and he says stand up. I too am just a man. There's nothing special about me. Then verse 27 and he talked with him and he entered and found many people assembled. So it's quite a, quite a group here. And he said to them You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. He totally gets what the vision he had was really all about. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. So Cornelius tells his story. Verse 30, four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour and behold a man stood before me in shining garments and he said Cornelius your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon who is also called Peter to come to you for he is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. Now then we are all here present before God. To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Wow. What does he want? He wants to know what God has to say. That's a man that's in the right place. That's it. Period. Tell us what God wants us to hear. It's Such a happy scene. It's such a pleasant, wonderful place. You can just picture all of this. I mean, these are... These are ideal preaching conditions. Let me put it that way. So the message is very straightforward. And and Peter starts very humbly. Acknowledging what God has taught him. So verse 34. Opening his mouth Peter said. I most certainly understand now. That God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation. The man who fears him. And does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel. Preaching peace. Through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea starting with Galilee. After the baptism which John proclaimed you know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were, who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead, of him All the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There's the gospel. Notice that as we talked about on Easter Sunday if you were with us for that Peter emphasized As Paul is going to do in Acts chapter 17. We talked about that on Easter. That the resurrection is very much about the risen Jesus being appointed by God. As the judge of the living and the dead. That's like a key feature in the apostolic sermons about the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter solemnly testifies to this truth. That all will stand before Christ. Who will judge them. Everyone. Notice as well that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So he's giving them the gospel message and while he's doing it, something completely unexpected happens. He's not even done talking. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles' also for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God so those six men that came with Peter they're blown away they're amazed because something happens right in front of their eyes that only happened once before it happened on the day of Pentecost and that's why Acts chapter 10 is often called the Gentile Pentecost. This is what the apostles and the other believers in the upper room experienced on the day of Pentecost the spirit came upon them and they spoke with languages they had never learned they spoke in tongues. So we've talked recently about sign gifts what we call sign gifts gifts of the Holy Spirit that are miraculous in nature like miracles and healing and speaking in tongues. These were signs of an apostle. But the apostles could pass those gifts on to other people. If they laid hands on people, they could receive these special supernatural gifts, be able to heal, be able to do miracles, to speak in tongues. But that's not what happens in Acts chapter 10, and that's why they're amazed. Peter not only didn't touch anybody, he wasn't even finished preaching yet. He didn't have an altar call or ask them to accept Jesus or come to the Lord or bend the knee or anything like that. The Holy Spirit opened the hearts of Cornelius' friends and family and they believed while he was speaking. So before Peter could finish, the Spirit came upon them in a very dramatic fashion. So it's not just a miracle, it's a really unusual event. It's a divine announcement. It's the reason for Peter's vision in Joppa. It says Gentiles who have Jesus are equally accepted before God as the most observant Jew who believes in Jesus. They're the same. They're the same. All the things that separated Jew from Gentile in the law of Moses and in Jewish tradition were no longer to be followed. Jesus said you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And that's what he was talking about. It's a new day. The old rules don't apply. So Peter's dedication to eating kosher his horror at the angels command to get up kill and eat these unclean animals is a clear preparation for a whole new way of living. So the old rules they had a purpose they did have a real purpose it took a thousand years for God to drill into the Israelite head that he was the only God you know and those rules kept a a lifestyle distance from their pagan neighbors so they would not become corrupted with their pagan idolatry but there was always the promise of the new covenant where God would write his law on the heart so their faith and the new birth would be the new and true way of being separated from worldliness they didn't keep those rules Israel was horrible at doing that rules don't really make sinners better they might govern them uh, kind of keep them from doing worse stuff if everybody sort of agrees that they shouldn't do things like sort of cultural pushing there but the new birth in the Holy Spirit does turn sinners into saints it does change the way we live it does change what we care about what we love we desire to be obedient and holy we don't have to be told all these commandments all the time so now they're to go reach the world for God announcing reconciliation of sinners to God through Jesus Christ. There would be no monoculture. There's not going to be a Christian culture particular clothing or hairstyles or diet or rituals all the things that were part of the law of Moses that wasn't going to be part of it anymore. The, the good news would transcend cultures and the moral lives of Christians would be the witness. To the truth of the faith so this really is another Pentecost it's the Gentile Pentecost God has announced in the clearest way his full acceptance of Gentiles simply upon their faith in Jesus period so Peter can only conclude in verse 47 surely no one can refuse water to these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did can he see that just as we did thing he's thinking about Pentecost and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ then they asked him to stay on for a few days so they got to learn more about the Christian faith and hear from an apostle firsthand. and what a great thing surely no one can refuse baptism can he well it's been a great experience for Peter but he is surely wrong about that Someone can indeed refuse baptism to those people and we're going to meet them in chapter 11. This was the beginning of the biggest controversy to hit the church in the early decades of the faith. The Gentile question. Does a Gentile need to become a Jew to be saved? That question, which was very controversial and much debated, led to the first great council, which is going to be in chapter 15. There's always resistance to being faithful to God. That's why Christians have to be ruled by the word of God, not our feelings or our preferences or our traditions. There's always opposition to the truth. And that's why courage is a key virtue in the life of every Christian, to hold fast to the word of God, to follow it wherever it leads. So God's plan is to gather his people from every tribe on earth. And in Caesarea God made that really clear with a wonderful spectacular act of the Holy Spirit in the presence of witnesses. So the next five chapters in the book of Acts in some way are all going to relate to this event and the challenges um, to what it means for the church going forward. That's it. So stay tuned. Let's pray. God our great father it is true that you love the world all peoples are desired by you to find new life in Jesus your mercy is wide your love extends to every land even our land which would have been unknown to those people in those days most of us in our church are Gentiles and our ancestors worshipped idols but we are liberated by you from perverse and rebellious things like that your spirit opens our hearts to believe and to follow so give us the same love for others that you have that peter showed here willing to follow willing to proclaim the truth to them so they too could know we ask you to help us be that way in jesus name amen all right chapter 11 next week